When did you get your first passport? How old were you? I was nearly 30 when I got mine. Um, but I do distinctly remember a couple of childhood memories that, unbeknown to me at the time, were to prove to be very significant in my life's travels. Uh, one was a Christmas present I received in 1963. Philip's Practical Atlas. It's dated 1961. That was its published date. And in the front, in my neatest writing, it says, Alan Cutting, 43, Pineview Road, Ipswich, before the days of postcodes. And I would turn to pages 24 to 28, and I would stare at the incredibly long, mysterious, unpronounceable names of towns and cities in the Soviet Union and think, this might as well be the moon. A totally different and inaccessible world. I was taught from my parents, in a sense, and their attitude, this was the enemy whose finger constantly hovered over the button marked bomb. Those of you who are my age or older will understand exactly what I mean. These days, my Azerbaijani wife and I and my friends from all over the former Soviet Union laugh together at the diverse memories we had of each other during those pre-perestroika days. The other childhood memory was of a dream I used to have quite regularly. Having clearly received Christ when I was eight years old, it wasn't very long, probably a year or two, before I would repeatedly daydream about going to faraway lands telling people about Jesus. The dream always involved me speaking from a stage, from a platform. And then my 11-year-old mind would come to its senses and I would apologise. I'm sorry, Lord, I would say. I'm dreaming dreams that are far too big for me. I'm just an unworthy slave. I'm happy just to serve you in Ipswich. And I repent of trying to elevate myself above who I really am. And with that, I would push the dream away until it would raise itself up again on another day. And I've told that story to people all over the world and conclude by telling my audience of how God actually heard the dream and not the apology. The gospel transforms the world. Let's just summarise what, uh, what David's just read to us. Peter's account to the Jerusalem believers of what he had just experienced in Caesarea. He told them the story, which is outlined in a bit more detail if we'd had more time in Acts chapter 10, namely that Peter had a vision while praying in Joppa of a large sheet lowered from heaven by its four corners. On it was four-footed animals, wild beasts, reptiles and birds, and a voice. And that voice told Peter to get up and kill and eat, and this happened three times. Peter, being Jewish, was very confused, but he hardly had time to object when there was a knock on the door, and through an angel, God had spoken to a devout and God-fearing Roman centurion called Cornelius, telling him his prayers had been heard and to send for Peter in Joppa. So the knock on Peter's door was Cornelius' servants arriving. So Peter, still very confused, agreed to go and meet Cornelius and tell him about the resurrected Jesus. 
When he did, the Holy Spirit came on all those who were listening, and so he baptised them. Just another amazing story. From the Acts of the Apostles? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that, indeed, it is another amazing story of people supernaturally meeting with Christ and being added to the church. No, in that this particular story has huge implications for us. So much so, I'm going to suggest to you this morning, that if it hadn't happened, there's just a chance that we'd not be sitting in this room this morning. For this was the birth of the very first Gentile, that is, non-Jewish church. What's the big deal, you might say? But we've been born into a world and at a time where virtually all the Christian church is Gentile. We get excited, intrigued, and a little bewildered when very occasionally we do come across Messianic Jews, Jews who have received Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. But Peter was born into a very, very different world. His worldview gave no room, no thought even, to Gentiles ever receiving Christ. His understanding, as we could have read in Acts chapter 1, was that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. So the voice from heaven had to talk insistently with Peter three times. If Peter hadn't eventually got it and crossed cultures to preach Christ into the Gentile world, Christianity could forever have been contained as a Judaist sect within the confines of Jerusalem. Now I think straight away we're thinking, yeah, sure God would have raised someone else up. It's just a possibility. So did we Gentiles, citizens of an island far away, which to Peter in his Philip's atlas would have looked like the moon, just strike lucky? Or did we just catch Peter on a good day for Gentiles? Or has it always been God's plan for his people to overcome their resistances and cross cultures with his gospel of love and grace and forgiveness? Well, where do we start? Let's start with the word of God, with the scriptures. I want to show you this morning that we do have a clear biblical mandate for cross-cultural mission and that God is even more keen on cross-cultural mission than I am. In fact, that our omnipresent God has always encouraged people from all cultures to cross cultures to model his culture to all nations and peoples. Does that make sense? Our omnipresent God has always encouraged people from all cultures to cross cultures to model his culture to all nations and peoples. So we see, if you go through the scriptures, if we had time, if we had all day, we could look at Genesis 1 to 9, the creation story, um, uh, man's fall into sin, God's grieving over mankind's wickedness of sending Noah. And then we get to Genesis chapter 10, which is entitled, if you wanted to look at it in your Bible, I think you'll find a little subheading called the Table of Nations. Something very new and interesting happens in Genesis chapter 10. Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, verse 1, by the end of the chapter had become nations, verse 32. Semites, Hamites, and Japhethites. In fact, between 
verses 1 and 32 of Genesis chapter 10, we are introduced to these following words. Kingdoms, lands, cities, clans, borders, languages, territories, nations, ancestors, and regions. And only the words land and cities had so far come about. All of a sudden, there's this huge sort of logistical shaping up of the world. We, we just read it and we think, well, we know these things. But this is the first time that they've been mentioned. all coming together in Genesis chapter 10. We're told that during this time, the earth was divided. And also, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations, from these families, the nations spread out over all the earth after the flood. Now, Genesis, there's incredible things there for, for us to study if we wanted to in, in chapter 10. Chapter 11, we get the Tower of Babel, where the world had one language and common speech, and said, come in all our glory and wisdom, let's build ourselves a big city. God came and he confused it, and he scattered it, uh, at least he confused and scattered this attempt at unity and partnership. Ah, so you might say, so God is against nations crossing cultures and coming together. Is he against globalisation? Is he against unity? No, he's against people united in rebellion. He's against people united in self-aggrandizement. And so from Genesis 1 to ch chapter 11, there was man's attempt you know, let's get it together without God. Let's get a bit of unity going. Let's get, let's get ourselves sorted. And so from Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abram, God says, well, it's not going to quite work that way. That's probably a little bit more complex. And so from even Genesis chapter 12, we get the call of Abram. Go from your country, from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And the glorious call, first four verses of Genesis 12. So old was he, I couldn't even have taken him with Samaritan's Purse on a short-term team. He's too old to be covered under our travel insurance. <laughs> but that was the beginning of God's call of sending people to the nations. And throughout the Old Testament, Abram, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, um, to catch up with myself, all these people, Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, Jonah, um, all undertook journeys, conquests, cross-cultural missions, sometimes fearfully, often reluctantly, trying to persuade God um, to send somebody else. And the Old Testament prophets often used to talk about a nation. Some of the scripture we even read this morning and the songs we've sung based on scripture talks about these very things. But Jonah, just take Jonah for example, he wasn't just reluctant, he actually ran away, didn't he, from God's cross-cultural call to preach in Nineveh. He ran away from the Lord, had a whale of a time trying to get to Tarshish, Eventually, I'm sorry, it was a sort of dad joke really, wasn't it? Um, eventually reluctantly agreed to go to Nineveh, but when they repented, Jonah got grumpy with God for withholding his judgment. So they're not exactly, you know, the most dynamic of cross-cultural missionaries. God's always in the lead, hauling his people after him to catch up with what his heart is. If we look the same with Jesus, well, there we've got the most ultimate cross-cultural sending of ever. We could spend all day, we could spend all year on this. God sending his son from the culture of heaven to the culture of earth in order to be found in the appearance as a human, to give his life 
um, for the rescue of mankind. We see how clear that Jesus was in terms of um, how he related to people from other cultures. Remember how comfortable he was with the Samaritan woman at the well. We could look at stories of how he sent short-term mission teams, Luke 10 and 11, fascinating stuff. Matthew 24, um, the gospel of the kingdom, he said, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, to all ethnicities, basically, that was saying. And then the end will come. And again, Matthew 28, great commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority, heaven on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, etc. So we see it from the Old Testament. We see it from Jesus. We see it from the New Testament, Philip, Paul, Barnabas, etc. All missionaries who crossed cultures to spread the gospel. Why? In order so that John could see into heaven one day. Revelation, the very end, start from Genesis, go through to Revelation. And he says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Wonderful. So Genesis to Revelation, absolutely consistently the heart of God is to cross cultures and to call his people to cross cultures for the sake of the kingdom. We could also note that the scriptures both in Judaism and Christianity give clear teaching about how to receive aliens. Again, clearly spoken scripture was it a psalm um, just now about aliens, about foreigners in other words, how to be aliens in the land, being good foreigners, how to receive foreigners, um, which is a wonderful thing. So God's love for all nations, we could dig as deep as we like into the scriptures, we'd find running through the heart of God, his huge love for every tribe, every nation, his creation. And we find that God has always called his people, incomplete and fearful as they are, to cross cultures and to take his way, his truth, his word, his life with grace to the nations. Jesus' great commission, he said, go. So many people have said in response, I'm too frightened. No problem, he says, then go scared. And uh, that's why I suggest to you this morning that if Peter had gone to, hadn't gone to Caesarea and crossed cultures to preach Christ into the Gentile world, Christianity might, just might, have forever been ring-fenced as a Judaist sect within the confines of Jerusalem. And just think, this morning you'd have been cleaning your car. I want us to have a further look again at Acts 10, Acts 11. It's a repeated story. David read to us slightly summarised version, again because of time. But if we had time, we could dig around in Acts 10, Acts 11, the Acts of the Apostles, which I often think is more like the hesitations of the Apostles. So Acts chapter 10, or Hesitations chapter 10, very, very quickly, verse 14, Peter said, Surely not. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Lord, you've been great up to now, but I think you'll find you've got this one completely wrong. It's like someone who, through very strong principles, has been teetotal all their life, being told by God in a dream to go down to the pub and have a few pints with the lads. Or maybe you think this is a stupid comparison, because you know the Holy Spirit would never ask you to do this. But this is almost exactly what Peter was facing, only culturally much, much deeper. To abstain from such foods was fundamental Jewish practice for many thousands of years and based in crystal clear scriptural teaching. The Holy Spirit would never ask me to do this. 
Well, you know the last words of a dying church? But we always did it that way. So, verse 16, God had to present the vision to Peter three times. Deep cultural resistance from Peter. Peter wondered, verse 17. He was still thinking, verse 19. He was hesitating, verse 20. The Holy Spirit said to him, don't hesitate. Go with them, for I've sent them. So when Peter spoke to Cornelius' servants, really grumpy, verse 21. Well, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? My Peter? Could be. Who's asking? Why? What do you want? Like the stressed shopkeeper huffing and puffing and saying, as though I didn't have enough to do, we got customers coming into the shop. <laughs> it's what he was there for, for heaven's sake. Verse 26, Peter eventually goes. He arrives, another frosty introduction. Peter snapped his first words to Cornelius. And then he asks, um, why, why is he here in the first place? I shouldn't really be here, he says, verse 28, because you're impure and unclean. <laughs> nice, jolly. <laughs> but here I am anyway, so what do you want? Not exactly how to win friends and influence people, is it? So verse 34, Cornelius tells him about the dream. And then Peter just gradually said, now I realise that God does not show favouritism. Well, compare all this with Peter's previous preaching. First, ten, you know, ten chapters of Acts. Bold, raised voice, assertive, taking every opportunity. Acts 1, Acts 2, lame man healed with the Sanhedrin, with Ananias and Sapphira, Tabitha raised from the dead, etc., etc. Just a picture of dynamic. But here he was, grumpy, resistant. Something had crossed a cultural boundary. Someone had crossed a cultural boundary. It was the Holy Spirit drawing him to realise that salvation was for you and I, the Gentiles. Wonderful. He was absolutely amazed at what God had decided to do. It totally bowled him over, blew big holes in his narrow world. So he decided, at least I'll go and I'll pay them the courtesy of telling these impure and unclean Gentiles what God had done through Jesus, at least for the believing Jews in Jerusalem. And so as he was speaking, verse 44, then the Holy Spirit falls on them. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the message. Peter and his friends were amazed all over again. This time, verse 45, we're told they're astonished. He eventually gets it. You know, God takes him kicking and screaming into the Gentile world. And then when he saw what God had done, he tried to persuade those in Jerusalem what had happened. So this is where we started to read. And he was instantly criticised in Jerusalem. You know, if some of you go into a place and people don't say, hello, they say, you're in trouble. <laughs> you know you are. <laughs> Basically, he arrived in Jerusalem and they said, you went to the house of the uncircumcised and ate with them. <laughs> to which he replied, good morning. <laughs> um, but see, on and on it went, right the way through, actually, through the Acts of the Apostles. After a full explanation, their resistance waned. They had, further, they had no further objections, at least. It's generous of them, verse 18. Um, and, but, but on it goes, really. And you could see it took Barnabas to see the grace of God, not the methods or techniques or the dominant culture, but he saw the grace of God and was glad. But even right through in Acts 15, in Acts 21, we see dispute and debate and resistance and issues surrounding Jewish rituals and vows and purification rites. Why am I saying all this? I want us to be encouraged by people like Jonah, disobedient and grumpy as he was. I want us to be motivated by the hesitations of the apostles. 
by Peter being dragged kicking and streaming into the will of God, by the Jerusalem church getting its phylacteries in a twist over how to cope with all these Gentiles getting saved. I want us to get encouraged by that. We're often told that these guys are the heroes of the Bible, but they had their fears and their prejudices and their blinkers and their resistance to God just like, and to others just like we do. Their God was way too small. Jonah had a God who didn't forgive when cities repented. Peter had a God who only loved Israel. We make these New Testament characters out to be supermen, but often they were not. They're just a bunch of rescued dysfunctionals just like us. Sorry, madam, just like me. (laughs) There's only one hero in my Bible. But eventually, gradually, they caught up of the nature and the purposes of God who loves to forgive and who embraces every culture, and they went. And as a Gentile nation, which they should have considered well outside the mercy of God, well, we should be really glad they did. So, what does the... Uh, what, what, what's, what are we talking about these days? What does cross-cultural mission look like these days? Well... We used to say missionaries are like prunes, they go into the deep interior and do good. And the modern day missionary movement, pioneered by people like William Carey in the late 18th century, um, has as its stereotype a few faith-filled men and women who sacrificed everything, spent a lot of time overcoming local opposition to their plans, where possible investing into lengthy training before setting sail for dark and mysterious places unknown, rarely to be heard of again, taking half a century maybe to plant a small church or even no church, or to be eaten by lions or cannibals, whichever managed to get them into the pot first. We even have a memorial to such faith-filled pioneer in our own church building. Are you aware of that? August the 9th, 1900. What are we now? 2010. 110 years. And when, at the first church where I was a pastor in Northamptonshire, it was one of William Carey's sending churches. The UK has a rich heritage of pioneer cross-cultural missionaries. So this guy was a martyr for the sake of the gospel. I'd love to know more about him. God bless his work, even these days. I clearly recall an elderly missionary speaking in the church I attended as a child with my parents focusing his eyes firmly on me as he worked up to the inevitable crescendo of a call for young people to give their lives to the mission field. Apart from me and my parents, the next youngest in his congregation must have been 83. So no pressure there then. Times have changed, of course, for better and for worse. Globalisation and instant communication still absolutely amaze me and has a big impact on the way we think and the way we act. So here are some of the developments in recent years. This is the first one, a flexible, shorter, contextualised ministry. For now, the overseas mission trend, not in all cases, um, but from the UK, the trend is for more flexible, shorter, contextualised training, shorter stints on what used to be and is no longer called the mission field. Rarely are they called missionaries, for that's actually what we're all called to be. And what they do and the way they do it is radically different from that classic missionary image. We've all heard the cringing stories of Western missionaries insisting that women in the jungle should wear bras. 
But I recently heard a story of a missionary in the jungle who taught that women should wear head coverings. Obediently, the local women turned up to his next crusade in head coverings, naked from the waist up, but they had the head coverings on, at least. not exactly what he was aiming for. So Western models of ministry with Western funding and Western leadership are no longer in favour. I have a number of friends in the former Soviet Union who embraced the preaching of the Western missionaries who flooded in after Glasnost and Perestroika in the early 1990s, but who rapidly became quite disillusioned with the way these missionaries taught the gospel and the values that they saw them live out. They claimed that the gospel of sorts was proclaimed, but it came with so much baggage, wrapped in a shallow culture of consumerism and materialism, prosperity and power, fostered democracy, as though Jesus was one big handout rather than the master and the Lord to be loved and trusted and honoured and obeyed, come what may. But those few missionaries who are still there, who stayed on, they've really listened. They've listened well. So we basically moved from being missionary societies um, to mission agencies um, to mission consultants. And these days you're much more likely to find foreign, say Western believers, serving as educators and medics, consultants serving the local church and keeping out of places of ultimate leadership and authority as much as possible, being enablers, being equippers, being servants to the local believers. So, for example, um, rather than open an office in the former Soviet countries in which I'm working, we fund independent consultants. These are respected nationals who know and love their culture and who envision and help mobilise local pastors by providing um, training and helping them to reconnect with their neighbourhoods, communities and societies with a compassionate, contextualised, integral gospel. So that's one of the trends. Another one is this, short-term mission teams, a phenomenon that's grown rapidly over the last generation. And this gives people the opportunity to go and visit wherever for a couple of weeks and see for themselves a different culture, to learn some good discipleship and development practice, by living, loving and working alongside the local church around the world. Some teams maybe have an evangelistic focus, some do practical tasks, some take skills for short-term use in other nations, some go for research and learning purposes so that they can return, perhaps be advocates, fundraisers, prayer partners for the people they've met. There's a growing interest in Burlington for sending such a team, uh, maybe teams, to meet with some of the partners and people we know around the world even next year. So if you want to know more about this, please see Claire or me about it. Another... I've covered that. So um, this is another one. Missionaries actually arriving in the UK. So third, fourth, wherever we're up to, these days more missionaries come to the UK than go from it. Currently, the largest UK church is the Nigerian-led Kingsway International Christian Centre, as far as I know, planted in 1992, now with something like 12,000 people attending their Sunday meetings in East London. Many missionaries are coming, or missioners are coming to the UK from supposedly developing nations where God has been powerfully pouring out his spirit. We've got so much to learn. It's a different days and a different age. And then also the gospel on my street. Even if you're Ipswich born and bred, have always lived in the town, 
have no passport and holiday each year in Felixstowe, you still need a considerable degree of cross-cultural awareness these days, even if you're going to take the gospel across your street. The gospel, the global gospel is on my street. The gospel transforms the world on my street. So whoever you are and whatever our lifestyle, whatever our calling, this is a word for us to understand, to pray for uh, the nations, to become engaged because the heart of God is. So I just want to end with a story, if I may. In June 2009, I led a team that went to Uganda to learn about water and sanitation programs, one of the Samaritan's Purse um, projects that we support. We visited the Connect Africa resource centres in northern Uganda to the mainly Acholi village of Atiak, just 20 kilometres south of the Sudanese border. It's a small town made world famous by two horrendous massacres, one in the 90s and another one five years ago. The Lord's Resistance Army, LRA, you might remember, attacked and killed an unknown number of adults and children. They showed us no mercy, I was told. They torched houses, they raped and they butchered. And all this came only a decade after, now brace yourself for this, only a decade after 300 children had been rounded up, forced to eat the chopped up remains of their headmaster, killed, and the parents told that if they took the bodies for burial, they would also be murdered. And so the rotting remains of their children lay down the road at the school for months. I'm really, really sorry, but this is how it was. Connect Africa, this agency, worked through the local pastors and churches to encourage holistic ministry into each community they're working with. Simple, clean water and sanitation technology are as much a part of their Christian witness as preaching, teaching and healing the sick. All these aspects of the kingdom nestle comfortably alongside one another in their ministry without conflict or debate. So this night, Wednesday 17th of June 2009, as part of their offering to the village, Connect Africa held what is an occasional three-night festival on the town's tufted football pitch, bordered not by terracing or changing rooms, but by tiny round huts made of straw roofs and cow dung walls, the dwelling place of thousands of internally displaced people. An area the size of five-a-side pitch was roped off in front of the stage, which folded out of a truck, PA, speakers, lights and all. I've got a picture of it here. I think. Um, that was it being set up. Um, the local believers were invited inside these ropes where they spent about two hours worshipping, dancing, and let's be honest, gathering a crowd. So this night the worship gathered about 3,000 people. And it was at that point that Trevor, the Canadian director of the agency we were with, quite casually invited us foreigners to do a turn, just because we're there. So I took a deep breath, got Carl to belt out some songs, I told the crowd a story and I got guy Tom to preach. Hundreds of people that night asked to receive Christ. Many were healed and delivered from ugly demons that manifested themselves through the writhing of bodies on the ground. It was open heaven. It was absolutely extraordinary. What was the story I told those impossibly pained people of Atiak that evening? Well, that night, and with all my heart, I wanted this unbelievably battered community to dare to dream dreams again. So as the crowd came out of their little mud and straw huts and pressed in to cover the length and breadth of the football pitch and beyond, 
and a stormy darkness fell over another day of abject and lethargic poverty, I told them the story of my guilty childhood dreams, of crossing cultures and sharing the love of Jesus, and of how God had heard the dream, and not the apology. And do you know, as I testified, and as I looked down on that rickety portable stage and out into the swollen crowd, incredible realisation slowly dawned on me. I've been here before. This was the stage. This was the, this was the crowd. This was the setting. This was the event. This is the very place I saw in my dreams in 1963. I'd actually seen Atiak, northern Uganda, 46 years previously. Absolutely amazing. Hallelujah. <laughs> my father in heaven. My father in heaven who chose his only son to cross cultures from heaven and come to the broken rebellion dysfunctionality of earth. Whose heart has demonstrated throughout all ages and all scriptures that you lead the way with your hunger and passion that your people should cross cultures for the sake of the gospel. Lord, sow this word in our hearts so that we understand, we know. Lord, melt our resistance. Take away our fears. Cause us, Lord, to to get interested. Cause us to pray. Cause us to listen to you. Cause us to obey. Lord, that your kingdom might come across our street. Lord, across our nation. Across our globe. In the precious name of Jesus.